Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? All right, hello folks. Pete Troopas here with Starting Strength to give you an update on all the events that we have coming up. First and foremost, we're happy to announce a grand opening for our Starting Strength Denver on January 11th. If you'd like to attend, you can RSVP at denver.startingstrengthgyms.com. We're also having a squat camp the very next day on January 12th where Rip will be coaching along with head coach Jared Nesland. We have a lease signed for Starting Strength Boston. More to come on that. And Starting Strength Los Angeles is currently on the hunt for a lease and location in the greater Los Angeles area. Seminars still on the schedule. We have spots open in Las Vegas still. That's on February 7th. Then we'll be down in Wichita Falls on March 6th and over on the East Coast on April 17th in Woodmere, New York. As far as lifting camps go, the following are all squat and deadlift camps. Moodus, Connecticut on January 25th in Anino Strength. Weights and Plates in Phoenix, Arizona on February 15th. Miami, Florida at CrossFit Seoul on February 22nd. Woodmere, New York at Woodmere Fitness on February 23rd. And our first camp in Minneapolis, Minnesota on March 21st at CrossFit Kingfield. We'll be in Portland, Oregon at Next Level Barbell on February 16th for a press and bench press camp. If you're looking to become a starting strength coach or just get better at coaching the lifts, we have some coaching development camps still on the list. Dallas, Texas at Starting Strength Dallas on January 26th will be covering how to coach the power clean. Then down in Houston, Texas on February 22nd covering how to coach the squat and over on the West Coast in Villa Park, California at the Strength Co covering how to coach the power clean. And of course our nutrition camp still on the list Woodmere, New York on January 26th, and Houston, Texas at Starting Strength Houston on February 1st. For details and registration information, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting strength radio. Welcome back to starting strength radio. Good Friday to you. We are coming to you. Not live. I'm sorry. This is not live. This is a recording, but we're recording it from our studios and in uh, beautiful downtown Wichita Falls, Texas. We are live. We're live to us right now. We're live. This is as live as it can be. You know, it's just that by the time these other people see or hear this, it will not be live. It won't be dead, but it'll be a recording. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, today we're going to do a Q&A uh, where you send us terribly interesting questions and we treat them seriously. And uh, actually use them for show, what would you call it, platforms for, or, 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 or yeah, a platform for discussion, a, what am I trying to say, a springboard for, springboard for discussion, that's right. See, I'm getting platform and springboard diving confused because <laughs> of my vast exposure to so many sports in my life. And uh, so we're going to use this as a springboard, this question pile here. We've got for, uh, a springboard for discussion today. But first, comments, comments from, from the, the haters. haters. Benjamin Zawi, that is... All of the vowels except <laughs> the E. It's Z A O U I. 
Only he needs an E in there to get the whole damn thing. The whole shooting match, right? Rip, don't listen to the haters. Yes, you're ugly and have a pot belly, but you're the man. <laughs> All right, now, let me. All right, Bree, honey, I want to ask you honestly do you think I'm ugly? No. You're sure? Positive. You're not just saying that because you work for us? Well, I don't know. I think they should post pictures of themselves before Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. Benjamin, before you say that Rip is ugly, maybe we need to see a picture of you, honey. Is there a way that you could follow up on this and post a picture of your handsome young ass on comments from the haters? Okay. Tommy Sticks says, in a fairly predictable, but the spirit of the comment is predictable, of course, but the interesting way in which it's it's uh, uh, characterized is, is fascinating. If the presenter's physique is any indication, this is the program to follow if you want to be built like a butt plug. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Milk like a butt Oh, and this one is the this is the choicest one we've had in quite some time. JK407 says Rip's mouth always look so moist. <laughs> that grossed me the fuck out. <laughs> God, J.K., you realize that I'm not available to you, right? I'm I'm just not available. Well, I don't know. Maybe J.K.'s a girl. You ever thought about that? Maybe. Probably not. Girls don't think this way. Oh, they think that way. They just don't talk. They just don't talk. They don't even type that way on the Internet. (laughs) All right. Well, that's... Comments from the haters. Oh, God. So, this has been an interesting couple of weeks in the news. Don't you think? Interesting couple of weeks in the in the news with all of the, uh, just for historical reference purposes. Those of you watching this podcast, since we already confessed that it's a recording, those of you in the far distant future, this thing was recorded the week that the House of Representatives decided to impeach Donald Trump and then decided at the same time not to send the impeachment articles to the Senate, <laughs> making us wonder why it is we haven't recently seen one of these polls uh, that, that review periodically, time to time. Uh, Americans' satisfaction with Congress. <laughs> oh God! How do you get below six percent? That's the last one. I, <laughs> last one I saw was six percent, zero percent. Is anybody in the United States satisfied with Congress right now? Uh, I think I speak for 
most sentient beings by saying no, they're not. So that just that's the historical setting of today's of today's podcast. Those of you in the far distant future, when the sun is a red giant, billions of years from now that are watching this podcast, uh, know what week it was in human history. That is important. Of, important uh, reference for for no, historical purposes. November fourteenth. The approval yeah. rating was 24%. 24%? 24%. As of November 14th. Mm-hmm. Where did I get the 6%? <sighs> Maybe that's just my estimate of current uh, the, satisfaction. The 6% uh, was in June, and that was no opinion. 6% had no opinion? Well, I was just wrong on that. I was rude. <laughs> Happens occasionally. Well, in your defense, twenty four percent is pretty fucking. Low. In my defense, twenty four percent is is uh, not much of a percent. Is it? No, <laughs> not much of a percent. Especially because that twenty four percent is probably mentally ill. <laughs> yep, if you're satisfied with these people, <laughs> your standards are low. That's absolutely true. Here's something that came out yesterday that I thought was I grabbed this last night. Uh, and this is off of uh, a column, uh, a blog that's that's uh, consistently good called the Volok Conspiracy. Eugene Volok posts this thing, and and he's posted this guest piece by Ilya Soman. And that the the title of this is "Study Finds Almost Forty Percent of People in Eight European Nations Would Like to Live." This is a quote. In a world where chemical substances don't exist. (laughs) Where chemical substances don't exist. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, shit. This is... The reason I pulled this up is because I... You know, we here in the United States have been beaten about the head and shoulders with the idea that the European nation's uh, population is so much better educated than we are. <laughs> why, they're, why, they're Germans. They're members of the European Union. They, their education system is far superior to this terrible system we have over here. And uh, now, don't get me wrong. The United States education system is, is terrible. It's not getting the job done. But if you've got almost half of the population of Europe that doesn't understand what a chemical substance is, then (laughs) people are not particularly well prepared to understand about GMO foods and global warming either, are they? (laughs) Climate change. Oh, my God. Uh, look, you, you people don't seem to understand that there has never been an hour in the history of this planet where the climate has not been in the process of changing. The climate always has changed. You can wonder about, you know, how much CO2 is making a difference 
how much water vapor is making a difference, how much methane is making a difference, how much anthropogenic causes, how much anthropogenic causation, how much anthropogenic causation there is to climate change. But the climate's always changing. Uh, I would like for the geniuses in the European Union to tell me what temperature they want it to be. What temperature should it be in July and what temperature should it be in December? Please tell me so we'll know how to make it that way. <laughs> but it's 40% of the people, every study published in Nature Chemistry finds 39% of respondents in eight European countries say they agree with the statement that I would like to live in a world where chemical substances don't exist. Now, another 30%, 39% say they slightly agree or slightly disagree with this statement. Similarly, 40% say they do everything I can to avoid contact. See, that this is such a badly written sentence. They do everything I can to avoid contact with chemical substances in my daily life. All right, studies authors, Swiss academics, Michael Segrist and Angela Berth, a couple of cynical bastards, by the way, you'll have to admit that to submit this kind of a survey question to general population, probably designed to make everybody look like a fucking dumbass. They knew what they, yeah, they, knew what they were doing uh, because they know their population over there. Uh, You know, they, they, they this, this <laughs> so they go on to talk all about this. It may be tempting to make fun of scientific illiteracy in Europe, but we Americans are in no position to judge. Surveys in the, in the U.S. routinely find similar ignorance in this country. For example, some 80% of Americans say they want mandatory labeling of food containing DNA. Oh, anytime we see the stuff that the general public is participating in, it's just. Uh, and, and, and the reason I've dragged this shit in here today is because I just want you people who are still with us, still hanging in here to understand that uh, the general public is at the mercy of anybody that will pretend to be an authority on anything. All right. The general public, the poor creatures just don't know. They haven't been prepared. They don't understand. They can't understand. Don't be part of the general public. Think, about things that you're told, okay? And uh, don't just swallow things whole. You know, it's not good for you to do that. Okay, so I've carefully read all these things, I think, 
yesterday afternoon. Did I see all of these breed? Mm -hmm. Yesterday I did, didn't I? All right. So we'll just start one at a time and take them apart. Hi, I am a UK personal trainer based in a commercial gym. Have you ever noticed that everybody in the UK is based someplace? <laughs> they're not from there. No, they're based out of the UK. Yeah. They always say that. I, I, I see it over and over and over. I don't say I'm based out of Wichita Falls. Based I say I live Texas. in Wichita Falls. Based out of Texas. I'm based out of Texas. No, I just live here. But everybody in the UK is based out of someplace. This guy's based in a commercial gym. <laughs> it's an interesting idiom. It really is. I use the starting strength method as well as the principles played out in practical programming. Played out practical programming for clients. However, I can only control what happens when my clients are in front of me. Many of them do not work out outside of our sessions. And if they do, they do, they do not do the prescribed workout plan. So most of my clients are only getting one to two proper strength sessions a week. They're making progress, although slower than it would be with the optimal programming. How do you deal with this situation? Uh, well, I, I, you, you really can't. You, you really can't. If you're only seeing these people twice a week, at least they're getting two exposures per week to proper strength and conditioning. The problem you've got is all this other stupid bullshit these people are doing while they're not in front of you, which undoes some of the progress. Now, if you provide one or two proper strength training sessions a week for these people, and they're training outside the gym, and the thrashing around that they're doing outside the gym consists of stupid shit like 100 air squats or 40 100-meter sprints or similar uh, low-intensity, high-volume overtraining, then it's going to blunt the effects of your good program. And the only thing you can do is to please, is ask them, please don't do that. Uh, if you don't have them three days a week and you can't control what they do while they're outside the gym, uh, then you haven't got control of the program. And if you haven't got control of the program, my advice to you is just to cash the check. Just cash the check. You're doing what you can do. If you have no control, you have no control. And if you have no control, you can't control the outcome. All right? So just don't worry about it. Just cash the check. This is part of being in the commercial end of this business. Rip, your thoughts on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, after 50 years of age. I'm 52 and enjoy lifting and life in general. I self-administer approximately 500 milligrams a week of testosterone and love the boost it gets. I bet you do. <laughs> Look, if you're doing 500 milligrams a week, you're just doing a bunch of tests. <laughs> you're not doing testosterone replacement therapy. You're just doing a bunch of tests. Don't hog it all, dude. If you want to do a bunch of tests, go right ahead. I'll bet it does give you a boost. But that's, <laughs> you know. Way more than you need to be doing a week if you are 50 and doing testosterone replacement therapy. Okay. 
I mean, look, if you want to do steroids, do steroids. I don't care. But don't, don't call it TRT. God damn. Oh, man. Okay. More on doping. Right? Uh, just curious if you have watched the Netflix documentary Icarus. I have not. It's good. It's real good. Uh, Rusty's seen it. Bree just looked it up a minute ago. I, I know what it's about. I would like to know your opinion in one of the in one of the claims made at the end of the documentary. It is impossible. This is a quote. It is impossible to get a gold medal at the Olympics without doping. All right. I don't know that it's impossible, but I do know that it's just not done. You know, uh, this is uh, going to come as a shock to some of you more innocent people. At the highest levels of athletics, elite athletics, people that do that are not interested in fitness. They're not interested in health. They're not interested in what happens to them 40 years from now. They're interested in winning. And the fact that they are in the elite levels of the sport means they're very, very, very interested in winning. They're interested in winning to the exclusion of everything else. Everything else. And everything else includes laws and regulations and your little proletariat version of fairness and every other concern. They're not, their concerns are not your concerns. Their concerns are winning. And whatever it takes to win, they will do. Now, they, some of them are operating on bad information. For example, Barry Bonds took a bunch of steroids as a professional baseball player in lieu of doing his squats and deadlifts. Now, this does not reflect on Mr. Bonds because he was relying on expert coaches, expert personal trainers or whatever these guys hire for, uh, for information about what to do. And he was told to take steroids. He's concerned with his $80 billion a year salary, and so he took some steroids. Okay? It shouldn't come as a shock to you that at the elite levels of competition, the people that perform at that level are not motivated the way you are. They're not concerned about fairness. They're not concerned about anything except winning. They don't care if they have to go talk to John McCain in the Senate. All right? God, that'd be enough to make me want to kill myself before. <laughs> but, you know, so they, they're going to do whatever they need to do to win. And you just need to get used to the idea because that's what's going to happen. And that's what does happen. And let's not be naive about it, shall we? Let's just enjoy the performance for what it is the pinnacle of human physical performance. Just enjoy it for what it is and quit worrying about how the, how it got that way. Just, you know, it, it just it got that way in whatever way it was necessary to get that way. 
because that's what these guys will do. They'll all do it, and if you can't deal with that, then quit paying attention to sports. All right? You can't have it your way. All right? They're going to use drugs. Get over it. Quit worrying about it. Enjoy it for what it is. All right? One thing that um, documentary really hit home was steroids will not make you an elite athlete. You can do all the steroids in the world, but you're not going to place with these people. These people are freak athletes to begin with, and then they do steroids because they have to. Yeah, one of the most offensive things that's ever happened was back in the nineteen, back in the late '80s when the Carl Johnson or the Ben Johnson Carl Lewis thing took place. Uh, and it was suddenly revealed to the American public that Mr. Johnson had taken testosterone or anabolic steroids in order to excel in his sprint performance. And what was completely absent from the four-week discussion of this on every news media outlet, what was completely absent from that was any mention of the fact that Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis were right there. One would win, the other would win. One would win, they're competitors. They're freaks. They're amazing sprinters. They're not like me and you. They're, these people are the, they're, they're genetic marvels. They're physical geniuses. All right? They both use drugs. Because... That's the last 2%, right? But what did the media do? The media spent four weeks teaching every high school kid in the United States that all you've got to do to beat Carl Lewis, like Ben Johnson did, is take a bunch of steroids. Now, you don't think that had a significant effect? Well, you're a dumbass. All right. This is just one more way that the media fucks up everything they touch. They're evil. They're parasites. They're they're roundworms. Stay away from them. Don't talk to the media. Don't absorb the media. Don't believe anything they say ever. Because they're pieces of shit. All right? I hope that's clear. All right. Now, let's see. I understand that not doing the bench press is not optimal and deviates from the starting strength protocol. However, due to my work and personal schedule, I do not have access to a consistent spotter for the bench press. I would like to avoid the unsafe predicament benching without a spot presents. Given that consistency is one of the key tenets of your program, I would like to replace the bench press with another movement that can be progressed in a similar fashion, providing the appropriate stress needed to stimulate adaptation and be implemented without a spotter. Does there exist such an exercise that fits these criteria? No, or it would be in the program. Now, the way to bench press safely without a spotter is to do it in a power rack with the pins set just below the level of your chest and just above the level of your throat. So that if you miss a rep, 
You can set it down on the pins without getting killed. All right? That's the first part of the process. And the second part of the process is to learn to accurately gauge the weight that should be on the bar today. All right? You have to learn when to take small jumps on the bench. And that's going to be sooner rather than later for you heroes that want to take 10-pound jumps on the bench. You can't do it. And if you try to do it, you're going to get stuck. And you're, if you haven't prepared to get stuck, then you're going to be in a, in a pickle. All right? A spotter is wonderful. A spotter can be uh, either a lifesaver and a gigantic aid to your training, or it can be a complete disaster if the guy is just some bro hanging around in, in golds and you call him over and he grabs your fifth PR rep of your last set of five and says, one more, man, it's all you. It's all you. It's all you. So I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there are there are reasons to have spotters, and there are reasons to correctly set the bench press up so that it doesn't kill you, so that you can honestly get a PR without some jackass coming over and sticking his hands in your training. Okay, so don't uh, don't regard a spotter as absolutely necessary to do the bench press. If you're using the correct equipment, you don't need a spotter. Uh, correct equipment, I really think that, you know, there's not any reason at all to bench press at home without protection set in a rack. If you don't have the equipment to bench, then don't bench. All right? I, I, that should be obvious. If, you, if you're not in a – if you're trained by yourself and you have trained by yourself and you – you have no equipment to bench without protection, then you can't bench press. But by the same token, having a spotter is no guarantee that you're not going to drop the bar on your chest because a spotter can't catch that in the air. Nobody can react that fast. It just, it, the human reaction time is not up to the task of catching a dropped bench press. That can't happen. Doesn't matter if there's two spotters. The bar will hit you in the chest if you drop it. It will hit you in the chest. Now, the, the spotters can maybe catch it on the first bounce, <laughs> but by then your sternum's broken, right? So uh, you really you need protection anyway. So uh, keep that in mind. But to answer your question, no, if there was a substitute movement that was better than the bench, or even close to the bench, it had already been in the program, okay? Now, in, in fact, what is one of the reasons that, that incline is not desirable is you can't really do a protected incline bench. There's not really a way to set that up. You may have an incline flat bench and set it up in the rack with pins, but it's awkward, and the pins will always be in the way, and it's just, you know... So just, you know, make your plans accordingly. Okay, now, I recently read your article, Strength and Conditioning for Fencing, published in Strength and Conditioning Journal back in 2000. It's an excellent article that I think all fencers should read. I do too. 
I fenced and coached for a few years when I was a younger man. I really wished I'd learned about your program back when I was involved in sport. I'm ashamed to admit that so much of my cross-training was unfocused and silly nonsense, particularly the idea that running really long distances would somehow make me explosive. <laughs> well, that's why I wrote the article. And uh, as far as I know, it's the only thing in the literature that's specifically addresses strength and conditioning for fencing in a logical, uh, analytical way. Are you still involved in fencing? How did you get involved with the sport? What weapons have you trained with? So I am I no longer fence, no. I have had uh, a couple of severe injuries to my right shoulder. I'm right-handed, and I can't fence anymore. I've got no external rotation strength left of my right shoulder, and I there's just not any way to do it. Can't parry, all right? I uh, competed in Epe at a meet one time. Uh, I've uh, fenced with all the weapons and uh, just loved it. But my problem here in Wichita Falls is there was no one to coach me. I uh, worked with a, uh, a woman that was stationed here for a while she was out at the base and trained with her a little while but back when I would have been a competitive fencer I didn't have a coach and uh, didn't have the means to travel back and forth to Dallas to train so and there was no one to practice with it's it's a fencing wasteland up here and uh, as a result that never went anywhere I think I would have been a good fencer had I had an opportunity to develop in the sport, but I didn't, and now I'm crippled, and I can't do it anymore, so no, I don't. But I miss it terribly. It was fun. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. But uh, those days are gone. Lots of fun things I can't do anymore. Right? Uh, Mr. Ripto, first off, thank you for providing our office with the weekly starting strength radio program. Well, we're happy to do that for your office. We listen to it frequently and are amused when our other athletic trainer and physical therapist office mates are offended and irritated due to the opinions shared on the program. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm amused too. Because all they have to do is just believe us, me and you, and then they would be better at their jobs. But no, no, we got this. I know that's what they say. All right. Uh, We simply laugh and stoke the fire further. Nothing like planning starting strength radio in a facility that frequently uses cupping, dry needling, BFR, and Indian clubs. Okay, so what are your thoughts, opinions, etc., with regards to the recent court ruling dealing with CrossFit versus NSCA? I am personally an ATC and CSCS, that's Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist, for those of you who are not prepared to be impressed by the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Uh, he's a non-SSE who teaches aspiring service academy students a fairly verbatim version of starting strength, and do find that much of both the National Athletic Trainer Association and NSCA, National Strength and Conditioning Association, 
what most of them promote is uh, promote is silly bullshit, which it is. What are my thoughts and opinions regarding the court ruling? All right. I have followed this uh, in a very cursory fashion. Uh, I have some in, inside knowledge and some contacts with the people that are involved on the CrossFit side. And what basically happened uh, in this case was what happens in lots and lots and lots and lots of instances of peer-reviewed research being published. And what happens lots and lots and lots and lots of the time is that it's bullshit. The data sets are forged. Yes, they're forged. The conclusions were reached before the study was even proposed. And this appears to be what happened in the case of this particular suit. Look it up online. Not going to get into the particulars here. But uh, the, the situation is endemic to professional research. Not just to not just to exercise science, but to all professional research. And by professional research, I don't mean science. I mean professional research. Professional researchers and scientists are two different people. Most tenured academics are professional researchers, not scientists. And uh, they're self-serving in terms of in terms of the money they receive, they're grant writers and on the TED of the national uh, organizations the federal government maintains for supporting scientific research, quote unquote. There are a lot of, uh, of, uh, of motivations involved in this that have nothing to do with research or science. And those of you in the general public need to understand that not everything you read in a scientific journal is true. Okay. That's a topic of a whole show. Maybe we'll do sometime. Okay. But uh, this particular instance of CrossFit versus NSCA is probably going to end up in CrossFit's favor and uh, it's probably going to be uh, real bad for the National Strength and Conditioning Association. <clears throat> and it should be because they, they haven't been involved in either strength or conditioning in a very, very, very long time. Okay. All right. Rip, I'm a 24-year-old, 6-foot-1, 185-pound male. He's a skinny kid, Right. You often talk about the underweight 18-year-old, but how would someone a little older like myself approach calories? Does someone in their mid-20s have to eat more or less than someone in their late teens? Uh, Thomas, you're a kid. <laughs> you're 24. There's no difference between you and an 18-year-old. 
you know. Now, if you're 38, it'd be different, but you're 24. You're a little skinny, six foot one, 185 pound turd. All right, you need to eat more than you're eating right now because you know you need to gain weight or you wouldn't have asked me about this. And there's not any functional difference between your ability to gain weight and the ability to gain weight of an 18-year-old. And But I'm going to tell you, the window is closing rapidly. You better get up off of your ass and get under the bar and start eating a bunch of food and use the opportunity you have right now to get big and strong. Because if you get big and strong right now, you'll be bigger and stronger for the rest of your life than you will be if you don't. All right? Keep that in mind. All right? Now, dear Rip. I like it when people are polite. Dear, dear, dear dearest Rip. I've been getting severe pain in the inner elbow from the squat. It's gotten so bad that it completely prevents me from benching. My elbow feels like it'll explode during the bench descent. I switched to doing safety bar squats for a few weeks, and the pain went away completely, and I thought that was the end of it. But it took just a single moderate session of regular squats with 180 kilos or so for the pain to resurface again. What can I do about this? This is interesting for a couple of different reasons. All right? First off, if you're, what you're describing is golfer's elbow. Golfer's elbow is medial epicondylitis, and tennis elbow is lateral epicondylitis. So if your forearms are supine, this is medial, this is lateral. So this is tennis elbow, this is lateral epicondylitis, and this is medial epicondylitis. It's called golfer's elbow. It is an inflammation of the tendon insertions of the forearm flexors. And what typically produces this is an incorrect grip on the squat. It happens all the time. If you, uh, and we've got several videos about the squat grip that you can look up on this website. And uh, we'll tell you how to correctly grip the bar to avoid golfer's elbow. All right. I, there's there's at least three videos about that and an article or two. So I'm not going to go into that here uh, because I've done a much better job with it in the gym with a video about how to grip the bar. What I want to point out is this. He switched to doing safety bar squats for a few weeks, and the pain went away completely. The pain went away completely. But then it took a single moderate session of squats and it came back because the pain went away, but the tendonitis, the tendinopathy did not go away because tendinopathies do not heal with rest. All right. Now this is one of the problems with going to your doctor. All right. Because if you go to your doctor and you tell him that your knee tendon is hurting, He's going to say, well, are you squatting? And you're going to say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm squatting. He's not going to say, well, are you squatting correctly? He's not going to ask you about your knee slide at the bottom of the squat. He's not going to ask you about any of the, any of the germane things to what has created this knee tendinopathy. He's just going to say, well, quit squatting. And you'll go, well, he is a doctor. Well, after all, he is a doctor. He told me to quit squatting, so you're going to quit squatting, right? 
And for two years, you're going to have your head up your ass and you're going to not squat because the doctor told you not to squat. Then one day you get your head out of your ass and you think to yourself, you know, I just, I'm detrained. I need to start back squatting. You start back squatting and God damned if your knee pain is not still there. It will be because tendinopathies do not heal with rest. Your tendon has changed a little bit. It's changed for the worse. But laying off of it doesn't make a tendon heal up. And I this is disappointing to me too, okay? But the fact is that you cannot lay off of a tendon injury, tendonitis, tendinosis, all this stuff. You can't lay off of it and have it heal. It won't heal up. You have to fix the mechanical problem that caused the inflammation that caused the problem and train through it and make it heal under a load because that's the only circumstances under which the thing will regain normal morphology. And God, I look, I want that to not be true as bad as you do, but that's just all there is to it. Uh, you want your golfer's elbow to heal, you're going to have to work it. Uh, the golfer's elbow protocol that we've got and the tennis elbow protocol we've got are basically the same. You're going to do a whole bunch of chins. You're going to do repeated sets, 20 sets of two or three chins. You're going to make the golfer's elbow hurt like hell. Oh, you know, usually takes about four or five workouts. And then it goes away. You're going to force it to heal. You're going to cause an increase, a temporary increase in the inflammation in the, in the affected structure. And that temporary increase in inflammation, inflammation being the way things heal up, causes the inflamed tendon to go ahead and go through the inflammatory cascade and heal itself up. And we've used this chin-up protocol with people for a long time, and it works very, very well. And uh, to, to address your specific situation here, that's how you're going to deal with that. Look that up on the website. I've talked about it several times. Okay? This is David. David says, hello, Rip. I really appreciate the Starting Strength website and podcast. Information has been very helpful. One thing I've not seen maybe I just missed it, is how to fail the last rep of the squat. I have never done it. I think I have never had enough nerve to squat down with a lot of weight if I wasn't sure I could get back up. Is there a safest way to drop a heavy bar? Am I training too conservatively by never risking bailing out on a squat rep? I do train in a gym that has a rack with crossbars. I'm also 60 years old. Oh, this is, this is a rich field here. Dave, listen to me, hun. Dave, my friend, Dave, buddy, you are 60 years old. There is no way for you to safely bail out of a squat. <laughs> Whether you're in a rack or not, you're going to hurt yourself if you bail out of a squat. Bailing out of a squat is what young lazy guys do 
when they are training with bumper plates on the bar in a CrossFit gym where everybody's been taught to bail out of a squat. All right. First, don't bail out of a squat. Finish your set. Pick the weight on the bar correctly. Don't bail out of a squat. Don't give yourself permission to bail out of a squat. Force yourself to finish the set. It's a set of five. You do the fifth rep. If you don't know that you can do the fifth rep, you know how you find out whether you can do the fifth rep? You do the fifth rep. If you get stuck at the bottom, you learn something. If you don't get stuck at the bottom and you finish the fifth rep, you learn something. Either way, you learn something. You bail out of it. If you rack it at four, you hadn't learned anything. Okay? You have got to push on heavy things. Pushing on heavy things means that at some point the bar speed is going to slow down. And to you, it's going to feel like what it's now popular to call a grind. You have to do that. I'm sorry. If you want to get strong, you have to lift things that are occasionally at the limit of your ability because that is the stress to which you adapt. If you don't ask yourself to adapt to a force production event that is at the edge of your ability, then your ability doesn't increase. This is fundamental training theory. If you never ask yourself for a limit extension of your force production capacity, then it's not going to go up. This is part of the deal. I mean, gains are easy for the first four or five months. But at some point, things are going to get heavy. Things are going to get hard. That's part of this deal, okay? And part of the part of the deal is also you correctly deciding how much you're going to do today. It's got to be more than last time. But if the jump's too big, you may not be able to take it. Okay? Now, if you're standing inside uh, a rack that has crossbars and you dump the bar on the, on the pins, guess what happens? You just bought a barbell because you just bent the barbell. You don't drop the bar on the pins because it'll bend the bar. Not every bar is as good as a starting strength bar. You go in a commercial gym and start dropping their bars in the rack. They may ask you to leave. I would. You come into my gym and dump a bar on the pins inside the rack, you and I are going to have a serious discussion about why that occurred. And if I'm not satisfied with the answer, you get to train someplace else because your membership doesn't pay for new equipment at my gym. It pays to keep the lights on. Right? I don't need you in there fucking my stuff up. So I'm going to escort you out the door. Right? But the, the, the key here is for you to understand how to, how to approach your squat training. All right? It is, it, you are responsible for doing hard things. And doing hard things sometimes takes gathering up your balls and going down with a rep that you don't know whether or not you can squat back up. It's part of what we do. That's part of the reason why strength training, the way we do it, affects not only your physical 
well-being, but this part too. Because the hardest part of a limit rep is here. Okay? It's you making up your mind to find out whether or not you can do something you don't know that you can do. All right? If you know you can do it every time, you're you're just exercising. You're not really training. You're not challenging yourself. The process requires operating at the edge of the envelope. And if you haven't got the balls that operate at the edge of the envelope, you're not going to get accomplished what you can if you do. Okay? Understand? I hope so. Okay? Now, hi, he says, in one of the radio podcasts, Rip talked about a motorcycle accident. He had an knee injury followed by this accident. No, the knee injury occurred during the accident. (laughs) wasn't followed by the accident. That would mean I had the motorcycle wreck, and during the motorcycle wreck, I had a knee injury. I was just curious to know if he had a full protection gear. (laughs) Full protective helmet, riding suit, knee and elbow protectors, etc. I want to buy one soon, but after I saw what Rip had been through, I may rethink my decision. No, I didn't have any protective gear on. All right. I didn't have a helmet on. I never rode with a helmet. If I was to get back on the motorcycle, I wouldn't ride with a helmet. Because that's not why I ride a motorcycle. I didn't have any protective gear on the chain mail or armor or anything. A riding suit. What else did he mention here? Uh, Elbow protectors, knee protectors. No, no, no. That's that's a different approach uh, than I took to riding a motorcycle. All right. All that protective gear is if you're a track rider, that's what you've got to have on. All right. But I had my motorcycle rig on a kickstart Harley Davidson, a straight kickstart shovelhead Harley Davidson. All right. Which is not the kind of motorcycle that you uh, ride if you're. into protective gear all right here's here's the bottom line if you don't want to get hurt in a motorcycle accident don't ride a motorcycle because chances are very very good that if you ride a motorcycle you're going to get hurt in a motorcycle accident if you are not ready for that don't ride a motorcycle There's no way to make a motorcycle accident safe with a helmet or any of that other gear. Somebody pulls out in front of you and you T-bone them, you're going to get hurt. And it doesn't matter what you got on. You know, you have a, a bad motorcycle wreck. Chances are very good that the helmet is just going to make the funeral messy, less messy. Okay. Uh, if it's open casket. All right. You know, you have a motorcycle wreck at 75 miles an hour. You're just, you know, you had fun going out probably. But motorcycles are dangerous, okay? 
I quit writing five or six years ago uh, because I found that, A, I was getting too impatient. I wouldn't wait anymore because I'm old and cranky. I wouldn't wait when I should have waited. I detected my behavior change, and I correctly interpreted that as not conducive to being alive long on a motorcycle. At B, everybody is texting now. Everybody's texting. They're not looking at you. They're not paying any attention to you. Doesn't matter whether you got your headlight on or not. Doesn't matter whether your headlight's flashing. Doesn't matter what's going on. They're texting. And if they're texting at the wrong time, you're fucked. Okay. So my advice to you asking me a question like this is don't get a motorcycle. You're not, it's not going to end well. It's not a matter of if you get in a wreck. It's, 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 not, gonna, it's not a matter of if you have a motorcycle wreck. It's a matter of when you have the wreck and how bad it's going to be. Exactly. That's just all there is to it. Okay. Okay, now I am teaching my wife the main lifts. She has some scoliosis. She's seeing a chiropractor. Who has suggested she limit weight when lifting. I did see the recent post of a world record lifter with scoliosis. Everyone is different. I told my wife we should continue the linear progression with good form until we know we should be more careful. My thoughts are that if you've got scoliosis, then you're going to have scoliosis. Okay. Would you rather have scoliosis with a weak back or a strong back? There's nothing you can do about scoliosis. You can't straighten it out. Now, some degree of scoliosis is rather common. Most people do not have a perfectly straight symmetrical spine. Okay, the vast majority of people have got some asymmetry in their back. Usually, it's not a problem. But if you've got 40 degrees of scoliosis out of line, you've got kind of a bad situation. There will be a weight that you get to eventually in your training where you're running at the edge of that envelope we talked about a minute ago. Okay. But should you go up to that? I think you should. I think you should. You ought to be able to have a nice strong back without having world record deadlifts and squats, although it has happened. Our friend Lamar Gant was a, was a perfect example of a very, very strong guy with real bad scoliosis. So it's been done, and it, it's been done all it, it's done frequently. Uh, of course, the chiropractor is going to suggest that you limit the weight you lift. And I'm not saying you do stupid things, okay? But the human back is not as fragile as everybody thinks it is. And You've got scoliosis. You want it strong or you not want it strong. But you've got scoliosis. You can't do anything about that. You can't not have scoliosis. But you can have strong back scoliosis as opposed to weak back scoliosis. That would be my recommendation. Okay. Hi, Rip. Oh, this is too long. Now, look at this. That's too long. That's too long. Let me see if I can distill this. I must be able to, or I wouldn't have put it in the pile. 
I've been lifting six years, most of the time, according to starting strength. Great success. 26 years old. Six foot, 172. Uh, but I've hit pretty decent lifts. 150 squat kilos. 190 kilo deadlift, 110 bench, 70 kilo press. These are different, decent lifts. But I think probably the reason I grabbed this is because of this first paragraph. I've been lifting about six years, most of the time, according to starting strength method, and I found great success. But he's 26. So he's been lifting since he was 20 using our method. He's six foot tall and weighs 172. No, he's not been using our methods. Nope, he hasn't because that's not the program. If you'd been using our methods, according to our recommendations for six years, at six foot, you would weigh at least 220 and probably 240. Okay. Six years is long enough to get very, very strong, but not at six foot and 172 pounds. That's not the program. That's not the program. To get strong, you need to get bigger. You're not big enough at six foot and 172. So you didn't do the program because the program is not just what you do in the gym. Program is how you recover from what you do in the gym. And correct recovery from what you do in the gym involves gaining body weight. And you hadn't gained any body weight. You're six foot 172. You're skinny. You don't look like you train. These numbers are, if they're true, they're, you know, you got a you got a 330 squat and you got about a 400 deadlift. You know, you got a 220 bench, 242 bench. You got 154 press. Now, you know, I'm not impressed with that. You, you, if you're that strong, do you know what you could be, could you could be doing at six foot and 220? Six foot and 220. You're a 500 squatter. You're a 600 deadlifter. You're a 350 bencher. You're a 225 presser. That's what you ought to be. You haven't done the program, okay? And finally, can I actually build muscle at age 68? Well, why would you think you couldn't build muscle at age 68? You're alive, right? Your muscles still contract. Right? You get sore. You're not sore anymore. You healed up. You're 68. There's nothing about 68. Now, you don't mention your height, your body weight. You don't mention injuries. You don't mention anything except the bizarre idea that age limits your ability to build muscle. So, really, the question is, can you get strong, stronger than you are now at age 68? Obviously, you can. If you get stronger, what have your muscles done? Well, they've grown, right? Neuromuscular efficiency improves with training, but the same 
stress that produces neuromuscular efficiency also produces muscle hypertrophy. Yes, you can grow muscles. If you're getting stronger over time, your muscles are growing. They've got no other way to get stronger past a certain point. They have to get bigger. And since we know that old guys can get stronger, we know that old guys can grow muscle too. I don't know who told you you couldn't at that age, but guys like you who believe people like that are the reason that this this approach, this barbell training approach that we know works, has not penetrated uh, popular culture any more than it has. You have allowed somebody to tell you what you can't do uh, with no factual basis. Okay, there's no thing about you at 68 that means that your muscles can't get stronger and therefore grow. No. So quit believing this kind of stupid shit, okay? So that's the end of my stack. Anything else? You want to talk about anything else, Rusty? We need to hook him up with the first guy that's doing 500 mils. <laughs> we could do that. We could do that. Get him, get him about half of that guy's testosterone. Yeah, and he'll, he'll and everybody will be better off. Oh, absolutely. God almighty. Well, thanks for being with us today. Starting Strength Radio comes to you every Friday on your local podcast distributor and on startingstrength.com where we post this video. Um, Be thinking about any questions we might be able to help you with. Please try to make them literate. Please pay attention to your typing so that we don't have to decipher them. Don't send them in in Cyrillic or anything like that. (laughs) And uh, maybe we'll answer your question on a future episode of the Q&A here at Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next Friday. Thanks.